Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Well, the big night is finally here. The anticipation has been building all month of October, but this week it reached fever pitch as day after day seemed more drama came until tonight. The night is finally here. It's game seven of the World Series. First pitch is in a little over an hour. Someone said to me that that would mean probably I'd be preaching a short sermon. Uh, Don't get your hopes up. Emphasis on first pitch a little over an hour. I have been a Dodgers fan for 28 years. They last won the World Series 29 years ago. That means I've been a Dodger fan as long as you could mathematically be a fan without ever seeing them have success. So I'm very excited uh, tonight to to watch the game. Uh, We've been watching as a family together, uh, getting excited about it. Uh, So much so that I, I told Hunter and David that if the Dodgers don't win the World Series, I'm probably not qualified to preach on prayer. I jest, I make a joke, but a lot of people don't make jokes about that. Uh, Many people do pray for their sports teams. In fact, uh, Lifeway had a poll where they polled people who said they regularly prayed. And of the people who said they regularly played, 27% said they prayed for, or 13% said they prayed for their sports team. One in five said they had prayed to win the lottery which is about the same number that said they prayed for success in something that they had put almost no effort into. Uh, 14% prayed for God to avenge someone who hurt them. And 5% had prayed for someone's relationship to end, for someone to get fired, for someone else to fail, or admitted that they had prayed for something that they knew would not please God. So a lot of people struggle with what to pray. And not even that, many people struggle to know how to pray even when Scripture plainly tells us. For instance, the passage that Hunter just read that we're going to be looking at tonight, 1 Timothy 2, clearly commands praying for government leaders. However, only 12% of Americans who said they pray regularly said they ever prayed for that even though it's expressly commanded in Scripture. So people struggle to know what to pray. But worse than the struggle is the giving up, which is so widespread, both inside the church and out. D.A. Carson hits the nail on the head with the prayerlessness in America in his book, Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reform. Praying with Paul. It's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. In the preface, in fact, the very beginning of the book, he says this quote, and it's a little lengthy, but it's very good. He says, I doubt if there is any Christian who has not sometimes found it difficult to pray. In itself, this is neither surprising nor depressing. What is both surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterizes so much of the Western church. It is surprising because it is out of step with the Bible, 
which portrays what Christian living should be. It is depressing because it frequently coexists with abounding Christian activity that somehow seems hollow, frivolous, and superficial. Well, God forbid that describe our church abounding in Christian activity, but characterized by sheer prayerlessness. God forbid that describe any of us. It certainly did not describe the early church as we've been looking at Acts 2.42 and their devotion to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and it says the prayers. So what does this mean, devoted to the prayers? And if we would say of ourselves that maybe we have sheer prayerlessness, how can we repent of that? Well, it's not merely trying harder to do better more often. Um, You know, that's a lot of our approaches. We've heard a lot of sermons on prayers or read books on prayers and come away very convicted that, man, I just don't pray enough. I need to do more. Uh, But our lives are not much different than the disciples who, when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, were falling asleep, and Jesus would come back and admonish them, stay alert, pray, and he would come back and find them falling asleep. And the truth is, uh, most of us probably fail to pray more for the same reasons, just a lack of laziness, a lack of devotion, a lack of energy, or as Christ said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And for that, I think the best remedy is just as a church to pray together, to pray with other individuals. So when I was struggling with prayer last year, I called Hunter and said, I'd like to pray. Uh, weekly. Because I'm struggling with prayer, I think I would do it more often if I did it with someone else. And we try to meet on Fridays. It's not every week, but we try to meet every week. And I will tell you, I pray more on Fridays when I meet with Hunter than on Fridays that I don't meet with Hunter. So I would encourage you to the same uh, attitude. But what I want to look tonight at is not just how we can try to do better, but to give us a more biblical picture of prayer. And to address this, 1 Timothy 2 is a good start, and we'll look at some instructions that Paul has here. And then along the way, we'll pull in some other scriptures uh, elsewhere uh, as they relate to what Paul is saying. So um, turn to 1 Timothy 2, if you haven't already. And the first thing that Paul says in the verse, first verse is, first of all then, I urge... And then he gives a list of things, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings to be made. So if you're a note taker and you have a a piece of paper on which to take notes, um, the first point, if you like to keep up there, is for church pray first and foremost and for everything. Pray first and foremost and for everything. And if you're taking notes, just add an exclamation point to that sentence because Paul says he urges it, and we should take that with the force of a command. Prayer is the priority of the church. Now, when Paul says, first of all, some people, you know, question, well, does that mean first, like, just the first thing you should do, or does it mean, like, first, like, most important? Is it temporal first or like logical first? I think, it's, I think it's both. It's first temporally because it's first of importance. Um, I think a good illustration here is 
to think of a surgeon. Now, if you were from a third world and you came to America and a surgeon was operating on you and he walks in and the first thing he does is you're open, you know, lying on the table with the wound is to go across the room to a sink and begin washing his hands, you might think, I'm over here. Why are you not ministering to me? But a surgeon knows that there's filth on him that if he does not get rid of, he can do more harm than good. And in fact, he is battling with invisible forces, germs that, you know, he can't see. The first thing he needs to do is to wash his hands before he goes about the work of operating. And the first thing that we need to do as a church is to pray. If we expand the context of this a little bit, we can appreciate Paul's saying, first of all, to Timothy. So the letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, he's writing to a young man that he has left in the church of Ephesus to deal with the fact that there are false teachers in the church. And he leaves Timothy there. I imagine Timothy's probably thinking, why'd you leave me here? Why don't you come here and deal with this? But he puts Timothy there and he says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. He has confidence, not in Timothy alone, but in God. And he tells Timothy, if you look back up in verse 18, he gives him this charge. He says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good faith, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among those are Hymenus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, so they will be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul has left Timothy there to deal with these false teachers, and Paul himself has already put two of these people out of the church. Notice the emphasis on church discipline there. If you're struggling with the issue of church discipline, wondering if what we're doing there is a biblical concept, there's a, right there, 1 Timothy 1.20 is a clear example of Paul having to put two individuals out of the church, but in order that they might, be, they might learn to not blaspheme. In other words, in order that they might repent. So Paul leaves Timothy in a situation like this And he's going to have to both confront false teachers and in chapter three, it says instill new teachers. He's gonna have to clean up this church. But before confronting false teachers, Paul tells him to pray. Before establishing new teachers, Paul tells him to pray. Before chapter four, where he tells him to preach and teach the word is chapter two, where Paul says, first of all, pray. Pray first of all. So when he gives Timothy this charge and puts him in this situation, he says the first thing that you need to do, that you must do, is pray. Prayer is the means by which the church accomplishes God's will. We don't do anything in the power of God apart from prayer, because prayer is the way that we appeal to God for his power through the Holy Spirit. Philip Graham Ryken summarizes it this way. God is the difference between victory and defeat, and it is by prayer that we depend on him to win the battle. The victory depends on prayer because ultimately the victory depends on God. The power of prayer is not the prayer itself, but the power of God. In our prayer, we acknowledge our absolute dependence on God to conquer the enemies of the faith. This means that like everything else in the Christian life, prayer is for the glory of God. 
The way that it glorifies God is by showing that the victory belongs to him alone. If you're here Sunday night, we talked about the glory of God. We should do all things to the glory of God. Well, when we fail to pray, we fail to give God the glory for any of things that might come about. When we pray, we show our dependence on him and therefore magnify the glory of him when he brings about the things that the church is desiring to do and accomplish. So we pray, first of all, as the priority for the church. And we pray because the, in prayer is the power of the Spirit. We pray because in prayer is the power of the Spirit. That's a B, if you're taking notes, it'd be 2A and 2B. So nothing in our life glorifies God more than what he accomplishes in response to our prayers. So if we pray little, then we give God little glory. Prayer is a struggle for all of us, and I think that uh, one thing that we need to know is it's going to be a struggle. It's not something that if you're struggling in, It's not that you haven't arrived at the place of the more mature spiritual person who now sees it as no struggle, but it's a struggle for even mature spiritual people. John Stott uh, was a very famous theologian, has written a lot of really great resources, said that prayer is one of his greatest struggles. So even mature Christians struggle with prayer. But it is not a duty or just a chore to be checked off a list on our way to more important things like First of all, pray, and then you can move on into the more important stuff. But prayer is the primary means by which weak, sinful creatures can participate in the work of a holy, omnipotent God. That is how we can do work with him, by prayer and through the power of his Holy Spirit. So the person who does not pray is a person who is satisfied with their own ability and comfortable with their own plans and is confident in their own wisdom and strength. A person that does not pray, in fact, is really praying to themselves. They are seeking their own will by their own hand for their own glory. A person who is not prayerful has the the binoculars on backwards. They make much of themselves. They have a big vision of themselves, but the vision of God is small. It's more than laziness and neglect at that point then. That's really idolatry. When we set ourselves up as able to accomplish the work of God apart from the Spirit of God, there's no church work apart from prayer. So we do better when we recognize it as such and repent. We do better when we see it as not a bad habit, but is undermining all that we would attempt to do as a church when we abandon prayer. Now, as I was talking to somebody about this, as I was kind of working through the notes of the sermon, and I was talking to someone about this, they said, well, I struggle because, you know, I have a lot of great things in my life that I don't pray for. And that's true, I think. In fact, uh, I think our kind of common success as a Western church is a lot of what prohibits prayer. We're not that needy. Things are okay. If we're not sick, we're not praying. When we get sick, we pray. Uh, But by and large, most of us are doing okay. 
Um, but there's a very instructive passage that relates to this. Romans 2, 4, Paul says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we should not let common grace in our life keep us from prayer because we think, well, I'm doing okay without it. There is a greater danger than the failure that comes apart from prayer. And the greater danger is success that comes apart from prayer. Far worse fate is that we might succeed to the maximum of our ability, but to the minimum of God's power and blessing. So most pitiful of all is a life of so-called victories that are achieved without the power of God. This is true individually or as a church. Whatever we could accomplish apart from prayer is what hinders us from doing the greater work of God that he would desire us to do only through the power of his Holy Spirit. You can see this if you look at the life of Peter. You read the book of, of I mean, Luke, and Peter is long on action. I mean, he could do a lot. He'll jump out of a boat in order to try to run to the Lord. He'll pull out a sword in order to try to defend the Lord. He'll open his mouth far too often and far too quickly. But hey, he's a man of action. But you look in Luke, I mean, you look at Acts, at the transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit and how after Jesus had ascended and had given them instructions to wait for the Spirit and they would be his witnesses, how the apostles went to a room and prayed and how prayer is the, is the thread wound throughout the book of Acts and how you're dealing with a different Peter, the man who denied Christ three times stands up and proclaims him boldly in Acts 2 and in fact denies the authorities who tell him to stop preaching and says, I, I already have orders from Jesus, so I can't obey your orders. And this comes about through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit that was given to the apostles is the same Holy Spirit that God gives to his church. And the means of that power being evident in the church is by prayer. So apart from prayer, we, we're Peter in the gospels, not Peter in Acts. Again, listen to Philip Graham Ryken, who I quoted a minute ago. He said, imagine what it would be like if we had the power to resist temptation and overcome habitual sin in our own strength. We would be hopelessly self-righteous, claiming the glory for our own sanctification. But God brings us to our knees, where in our weakness we cry out to him as our only help. Church, is that, is that where we are? That's where we need to be, on our knees in weakness, crying out to God as our only help. The alternative is inevitably self-righteousness. Only through prayer will we ever hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, because apart from prayer, we're not doing well, we're not good, and we're not serving him. So prayer first and foremost of everything that we should do. 
in our life as a person and as a church. So number two, moving past, first of all, prayer. Prayer is the priority for us. Number two, church, pray according to God's will. And this is really the theme of verses two through seven, is praying according to God's will. So Paul introduces this by saying he, in, he urges prayers be made, prayers, entreaties, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. And then he gives an example for kings and all who are in authority so that for the purpose of living that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. But notice it's not just that, so that we might have a peaceful life, so that we might mind our own business, or have religious freedom, but he goes on to say, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So that is the end goal of the prayers that Paul is urging in the first verse. So he's he's saying logically, pray for everyone. You should pray for authorities so that we can have the kind of life that will enable us to proclaim the gospel so that people can be saved. And this kind of prayer is pleasing to God because he desires people to be saved. So if you wanna pray a prayer that's pleasing to God, you need to pray prayers that are gospel-centered prayers. Any prayer for salvation to come and any prayer for God's name to be made great and for his kingdom to be expanded is a prayer that God will answer because that is a, a prayer that is pleasing to him, accomplishing what he desires for us to accomplish as a church. So gospel prayers please God. Gospel prayers, what do I mean by that? Gospel prayers are prayers that focus on God's desire to save men in Christ and that focus on our mission to accomplish that. Gospel prayers are prayers that understand God desires to save men and he desires to do that through his church. And so we we should focus on those kind of prayers because they're pleasing to God. And Paul speaks here of, of praying for kings and authorities. And you have to consider that when Paul's writing this, the emperor was a man named Nero who was crucified or uh, persecuting believers who blamed, history says, uh, the, the burning of um, um, Rome on Christians. Um, this is not a friend of, the, of Christians. So Paul has in mind here that we should pray for leaders that we may not like. We may have leaders now or have had that we don't like. We should pray for them. Not only pray for salvation, but pray that God would give them wisdom that they would lead well. Even even a a lost leader, we hope, leads our country well because we live under their leadership. A helpful resource for this is a website uh, that it's actually, I think, on your prayer guide called uh, www.pray1tim2.org, 1tim2.org, like 1 Timothy 2. You can go there and you can put in your state and it'll give you representatives every day to pray for and it'll also give you some helpful ideas about how to pray for them. Uh, I'll share personal conviction. 
And I think it's probably not uncommon. I went to the site and I was looking through who to pray for one day. And I'm like, oh, I like that person. I really, I can pray for them. And then on down the page, there was another local representative that I don't like. And I would not vote for if I were in their district. And it was, you know, I, my first instinct was, I don't want to pray for them. Like, I don't want them to succeed. But that checks the sinfulness of our heart, Right. I mean, that's why Paul says pray for all people. He wants to expand our vision and help us understand that don't just pray for people that, you know, you like. Don't just pray for the people you want to see succeed, but pray for all people. So prayer for public officials aids God's mission, which is our mission, to make his name known throughout our land. And not just our officials, but where we're doing mission work. We should be praying for those governments, praying that the gospel could be go forth there. In China, where the church is growing, but it has to do so underground, we should be praying for the end of communism in that country so that the church can break out of hiding and persecution. And then Paul gives a, a few verses to defend his point that we should be praying for all people. And he grounds it in three things. One, God's desire that all be saved. Number two, that there's one mediator, which is Christ Jesus. And number three, that Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. So Paul wants us to think universally here. He wants us to think, take off the binders of our prayer life or the restrictions that would keep us from praying for somebody or the hate maybe that keeps us from praying for somebody and help us understand that God desires all people to be saved, even some people we don't like. And God mediates through, Jesus Christ mediates on behalf of everyone. Anyone who has a mediator has a mediator in Christ and him alone. So we have a common mediator with Christians that we may have difficulty with whether they're in another land or in this church, we have a common mediator. Christ is praying for us both. And Christ is the ransom for all. There's there's no other salvation to be found outside of Christ, which is why we should be praying for those who are seeking salvation from somewhere else. But it also uh, is reminding us of something because Paul, when Paul says, he gave himself as a ransom for all. The word for there is on behalf of. It's the same exact word in verse one where he says prayer should be made on behalf of all men. So Paul is doing two things here with Christ. He's using them as an example, saying just as Christ gave himself for others, you should give yourself for others in prayer. Just as Christ mediates for others, you should mediate for others. In prayer. So Christ is an example, but he's also the sacrifice that makes prayers effective. So when we're praying for the salvation of people, we have real and true hope that God can do this because of what he has done in Christ Jesus to make it possible. Because Christ died for people to save them. So it's not just that we hope 
that maybe somehow we could have a conversation with them. And, and if we get a chance to talk to them, we might be persuasive enough to help them see that, you know, Christianity isn't foolish and they might attend church with us and one day join. But beyond that, we have a hope that the Spirit of God will work in their life to change their heart and lead them into repentance. And in fact, I think what Paul is trying to say here is that when we pray for others, we are joining into the work that God is already doing. In fact, has somewhat already done in Christ. And we get to participate in that through prayer. So are there people maybe that you struggle to pray for? I know there are people that I struggle to pray for. That, that might even change day to day. Um, but, you know, the only way through that is to confess it, and if necessary, get with somebody and say, hey, will you help me pray for this person? Like, I, you know, I have trouble with them. You seem to get along with them well. Uh, will you pray with me about this? But when we pray for our neighbors or our church members or others, we are participating in a work that God is already doing. In Acts 9, when uh, God commands Ananias to go meet with Saul, Ananias was praying, and the Scripture says Saul also was praying. God sent him and said, this man is praying, and he sent him to him. And in chapter 10, Peter was praying, and at the same time, Cornelius was praying. You have this picture of somebody kind of God is leading them to reach out for him, and he sends them someone to tell them the gospel. And there are missionary stories all throughout the globe of, of this happening similarly. I mean, a lot of Muslims proclaim this, that you know, they had had these visions and then people came and shared the gospel. So as you're praying for unbelievers, you have no idea whom God may already be working in their heart and life and may use your prayer to bring you into connection with them to share the gospel with somebody that he has already begun to work conviction into. So we should be praying for the salvation not only of our neighbors, but all the way to the ends of the earth. And then in verse seven, Paul recognizes that this is his mission. I mean, he's telling Timothy, like, this is my mission. It was for this that I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, he says. I'm not lying. He says that because some people in the church were contradicting him or undermining him, and he wants to make this clear. He says, I'm telling the truth as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul recognizes that his mission was to proclaim the name of God, even unto the Gentiles, and that's why he's encouraging this church through Timothy to pray for all people, even Gentiles, even Hymenaeus and Alexander that he put out of the church. The church should be praying for those people. The application for us is that there is no limit to whom we should be praying for. Now, when we talk about praying according to God's will, this is, this is very confusing to a lot of people. And a lot of people struggle to understand what that, what that means. In fact, some people uh, say, well, if God desires it, why do I even need to pray for it? I mean, if God desires all men to be saved and he's omnipotent, like, why do I need to pray for it? And their prayer life really consists of telling God what they want, as if he, like, he needs to know that. He doesn't need to know what he wants. He needs to know what I want. 
Why do I need to pray for something if God wills it? But biblically, that's the only thing you should pray for. The only thing that we should pray for is what God desires and what God's wills. That is the biblical definition of prayer, calling on the name of the Lord to accomplish what he has promised and proclaimed in his scripture, to achieve his gospel promises. A lot of people struggle with John 14, 13 through 14, where Jesus says, ask whatever you wish in my name and it will be given to you. And they, how do I fix that, fit, fit that in with God's will? Um, and a lot of people struggle and they think that means say whatever you want and add in Jesus's name to the end and, you know, that's okay. Or ask whatever you want, but, you know, just pray it like in my character, like if you, you know, are somewhat imitating me when you act, ask whatever you want, then I will give it to you. But when Jesus says in my name, he means according to the will of God. That's what that means. It's the New Testament equivalent of calling on the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So what Jesus is saying is you don't have to call on the name of Yahweh. You can ask whatever in my name and I will give it to you. I will go to the Father and give him anything that God wills to do in your life. If you ask me, I will ask the Father and he will give it to you. And even for that, a lot of people struggle and, and say, well, yeah, but like, what about what I want? Like, maybe what God wants for me is not as interesting as what I want. I think that's the struggle in a lot of prayer lives. Like, so all I'm going to get is God's will? That's kind of a letdown. And I, I recognize that can be sometimes a challenge or hard. Maybe for the one who's struggling with finances or loss of a job or cancer, it's, it's hard to think, what if it's not God's will for me to have this? But I really want this, so how do I pray for this? Well, there's a very helpful text on that. There's actually several Jesus says, turn to John. Bear with me because I didn't write it down in my notes and I've lost it. I don't, I've lost the reference. Um, look, look, look at Luke 22, I'm sorry. Verse 
You're well familiar with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but as he, verse 41, as he withdrew, it says about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And this is in accordance with the Lord's Prayer, one of the you know, classic examples of a study on prayer is the Lord's Prayer where he says, thy will be done, thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we see the example of Jesus there, that he prays not, what would I pray for, that my will be done? No, but that your will would be done. And Paul likewise modeled this. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 2, 12, Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh, says it was given to him so that he would not be conceited, but that in that weakness, the Spirit of God is made perfect. And in Colossians 4, and you don't have to turn there for sake of time, but verse 3 through 4, Paul prays, or asks rather, for prayer while he's in prison, but doesn't mention anything about praying for him to get out of prison, but rather prayers for the church and for the strengthening of the church. And even in Romans 12, we likewise are commanded to follow the example of Christ and the example of Paul, where in Romans 12, 12, we're told to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So we must pray biblically. To pray according to God's will requires us to know the Scriptures. We have to understand and know the Scriptures. And this, in fact, is, is the core of Paul's prayers for almost all the churches that he writes to. You can look at Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, where Paul is writing his letter to the church, and in the introduction, he says in all three of those letters in those chapters that his prayer for them is that they would increase in their understanding of the gospel. Rather, he says their knowledge of the truth or their love for the Lord, but he, in all instances, praying that they would get a bigger picture of the gospel because he understands that for them to pray biblically, they have to think biblically. They have to know the will of the God to pray the will of God. And that will change their prayer line. Give you two examples of this from Scripture. One a very bad example, and one a very good example. If you look at Deuteronomy three, in Deuteronomy chapter three, we have, as far as we know, the first unanswered prayer in Scripture. where Moses has been told he's not going to be allowed to go into the promised land. And he says in 323, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Let me pray, I cross. Oh, I, let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said, enough, speak to me no more of this matter. This is the first example we have of prayer that's not answered. 
And, and why? What's wrong with it? Paul, I mean, Moses starts with these uh, very uh, admirable statements about God's greatness, but there's nothing in this prayer that has any connection to advancing the progress of God's kingdom. It is entirely self-centered. And the Lord was angry about it and told him not to bring it up again. Now, if we think romantically that, you know, because God loves us in Christ, that any prayer we throw up and say in Jesus' name, God's okay with that, there's an example right there that that's not accurate. We need to pray prayers that are focused on God's will, not ours. So this is one of the fundamental misunderstandings of prayer. We need to just flip it upside down. Prayer is not primarily us telling God what we want, but us learning from him what he wants. It is aligning our will with him, not aligning his power with our will. And you see this very well in the positive example that I would give, from, give to you, which is from Jesus Christ, John chapter 12. This is similar to the Garden of Gethsemane passage, but this is earlier In John chapter 12, Jesus says in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus admits what many of us admit a lot of times, I am troubled by this hour, this loss of job, this cancer, this sickness, this situation. I'm troubled by this. But then he makes an observation, but what would I pray? Save me from it? This is the reason that I'm here. This is God's purpose. And and likewise, we should evaluate our life in the same way. Do we ask ourselves, Father, what is your purpose in this? There are... Numerous scriptures that talk about how God uses affliction to bring about a greater thing in our life, but yet as soon as we're afflicted, our our instinct is to pray that away. And we would do better to be as Christ and say, what should I say, save me from this? Or should I say, what is your purpose in this? And so to Jesus, the Lord speaks, but differently than he spoke to Moses, instead of saying, don't bring this up again enough, he says, I have glorified you and I will do it again. Our prayer should be, God, be glorified through this situation in my life. What is it in your kingdom purposes that you can accomplish through this situation that you have put me in? Will you use this thing in my life to bring about what you are trying to do that has eternal significance? And that is the focus of a gospel prayer. And very lastly, in verse 8, Third point, men lead the church in prayer. Paul says, speaking congregationally here, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. When he says in every place here, he's talking about every house church. He's speaking congregationally here. He wants the men to pray. That is the place in the congregation. The pattern he gives here is with holy hands, Think purity, and without wrath and dissension, think peace. These are the attitudes that he wants the men to have. 
seeking power by God's Spirit and not by their own hand. And I, I wanted to include this verse. It summarizes the, the section, but I really wanted to put it out as a point of application and emphasis to our church that we need men to lead in prayer. Yes, at home, but also congregationally. We need a church that has men who lead in prayer. Men in your Sunday school class or your home group, you should lead in prayer. You should be an example, give an example of how to pray. A lot of people struggle to know how to pray gospel prayers because they don't know the scriptures. If you're a home group leader or a Sunday school teacher, you should know the scriptures and you should be prepared to pray and give an example of prayer. I so appreciate Hunter praying for us every Sunday, the way he opens the service in congregational prayer. That is a good way for us to learn how to pray is from hearing our pastors and our leaders pray for us. So I encourage you, real basic points of application, if you lead a home group, you lead a Sunday school class, encourage your people to have gospel-centered prayers. Encourage prayer, when you take prayer requests, encourage prayer requests that have a subject and a verb and a direct object. What do I mean by that? As I, you know, I have to say sometimes, you know, my mom is not a prayer request. My friend is not a prayer request. And if I'm in a class and someone says that, I will ask politely, what is it that you want me to ask God to do for your mom or do for your friend? And, and then over time, you challenge that a little further and say, what is it that's gospel-centered that you want me to ask God to do for your friend or to do for your mom? And don't merely ask just anyone to pray, but ask people to pray that you know are going to give good gospel-oriented prayers, that are going to give it a good example of prayer. But most of all, men, we need men who will lead in prayer. When Paul says in verse 9, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, and he gives this, these verses on modesty, he uses likewise for a reason. He's, he's saying congregationally, men, you should be leading in prayer. Women, you should be worshiping in, in modesty. So if it bothers you, man, to see a woman immodestly, you should be bothered if you come to church naked with prayer, like you don't have any prayer. You're immodest before the Lord. You're not leading in prayer. To the degree that it bothers you that a woman would be immodest in the service, you should be bothered to be a man not praying in the service. So I hope when we have gatherings, when we have Wednesday night prayer meetings, community groups, home groups, that men will be encouraged and emboldened to pray for our church. We need men to pray congregationally. We need to learn how to pray and to pray better and to pray more. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used His Word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, His death for you on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.